0: The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future podcast with your host, Dolton. coming up today on Building the Future.
1: I went home and at the time I was in a relationship and I said to my partner, um, he goes, oh, why are you home early? I said, I kind of left my job. And, and he looked at me like I was the craziest person on the planet. This is recession. People don't leave jobs. What on earth are you doing? He said to me, so what are you going to do? And I said, do you know what? I want to try and do something of my own. He said, what? I said, I don't know yet. I'll figure it out.
0: That's, that's really scary.
1: <laughs> I remember that period of my life just sitting there, staring at the TV, just looking and thinking like just hit me with the idea already. Give me something, give me something. You're
0: this... looking for ideas? You know when
1: you're just staring into like nothing and you just wait for something to hit you?
0: This series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria. The British Council is the UK's international organization for cultural relations and educational opportunities. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council. For more information about the British Council, go to britishcouncil.org.ng. My guest today is Demi Ogoshaje. Demi is... a um, Furniture designer, manufacturer. Practically, she makes furniture, and that's an interesting thing for me because that industry is normally dominated by men. Manufacturing and making furniture is, you think about it, is men. And when I learned about what Demi is doing, I really want to just want to talk to her because she's making furniture. She's been doing that for about four years in England, and now she's doing something similar and the same in Nigeria. So, Demi is here with me now in Lagos, and we're talking about how she got started, what she's doing, and what's the future of this kind of industry, especially to and an implication of that in Africa. So Demi, welcome to Building the Future.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's good to have you, actually. Uh, you had a bit of a challenge coming here from the mainland, driving yourself. So first yes. of all, a lot of people that come from England and live in Nigeria, it takes them a bit of a time to navigate and start driving in Nigeria because it's very hectic. Why are you so crazy to Get on a car, me driving in Lagos.
1: Do you know why I am a bit crazy? I like to throw myself into things. That's how I learn to swim very very quickly you threw yourself into the water instead of streaming <laughs> that's the analogy I like to make of my life anything I've basically done or accomplished is not something that I sort of sit around and ponder on for too long I'm the type of person I kind of throw in and then figure it out whilst I'm in there so driving in Lagos basically just stemmed from an experience I had when I first came which was I did have a car I and I'm very independent in the UK but over here I had to wait on a driver and I had to wait on this I had to wait on that so so as soon as I decided to come back the first point of call was okay I've got to get myself a car and then I did also consider getting a driver but then I heard so many horror stories of them doing this and doing that. I was like do you know what I'm more than capable of driving myself I've got Google so the moment I realised that Google Maps worked here I was like that's it I'm good to go
0: and how do you navigate all the? Chaotic um, Lagos Junction, when people don't actually, most of the time, respect the rule of driving on the road. There is an unwritten rule yes. when you're driving in Lagos. How do you get around those kind of rules?
1: I don't really get around it. I kind of get through it. How do you actually How understand do I get those through rules? It? Yeah, through it. I just understand that everybody else on the road is a terrible driver. And I'm the best driver on Lagos roads. That's what everybody thinks. Yes, it is. And it's the only way for you to get through it. (laughs) Because if you don't anticipate the bad drivers, you will just fall victim. So I just try my hardest to just, okay, just understand that they can literally make a bad move at any point. How do I need to position myself? What should I be avoiding? And then I just keep going from that point.
0: So how long have you been in Lagos?
1: I've been in Lagos now. First time I came over was 2015. I kind of came for a month or so and went back. I've been back now, um, stable um, for, since last year, August.
0: So let's use that Lagos analogy. you coming to Lagos and throwing yourself into the deep end of driving. I, I believe anybody that's driving in Lagos is actually really, really nativizing themselves in Lagos. Because you could be an S or repart, whatever they call it now, mm-hmm. and you could actually want to be living out not within Lagos because you're living on the island and you're being children driving everywhere.
1: Yeah.
0: But for you to actually live on the mainland and you're driving yourself Yes. That's a answer. It's bravery. So let's use that as an analogy for you doing what you're doing now. You studied architecture mm-hmm. in the university. You could have been working in architectural firm and be doing some of them just drawing stuff. But you decided to be a furniture maker. Is that you throwing yourself into the deep end and trying to learn new things?
1: It is, but let me just kind of give you a, a bit of a background story into that. So, when I graduated from architecture, I graduated at a time where recession had hit the country quite hard. That's and England, in England, right? In England, yes, it hit the country quite hard. Graduates are coming out of university; there were no work. There was no work for anybody, and you know, people were going for the same roles. Now, within architecture, being a a woman is a minority, as it is, and then being a black female was even more difficult and I remember th- sort of going through my studies there was a lot of stereotypes that were made of me or you're too fancy to be an architect so you may perhaps you're going to you know, some sort of fashion design or something like Why? that
0: is there um, any kind of stereotype of architect not looking fancy or nice yeah, I, I thought it's, it's a very fancy design
1: design profession. Stuff, but I, I'm very sort of I like fashion I you know I used to go to lectures and put my heels on and I'm ready to go for it and all of that and I think there's certain stereotypes but it kind of sort of stemmed from that that I'm already a minority so a lot of these things were sort of working against me or, or so I thought. So when I did sort of go into the world of working as an architect there was no work. So the minority is always going to be the least sorted after individuals within the workforce. So... I ended up having to go all the way outside of London to try and find a job. Ended up in a small. What year was this? I believe this was about 2010, between 2009 2010.
0: I understand that time because that was when I finished my PhD as well, and my PhD was in a field that is hugely related to construction, Mm -hmm. because I was in environmental science and. There are two pathways for me. Either I become an academia and be working in a university as a lecturer or researcher or going to consulting and environmental science, immediately consulting for construction company. And that was the horrible time, the toughest time for you to get a job in construction. Toughest. Because like... people are just being laid off. Mm. They're not taking new people in. And I was actually in a double disadvantage in the sense that they were taking some graduates. I'm not like a graduate because I'm a little bit step yes, high, So they can't advanced. employ me because I'm too You're overqualified, over-qualified. <laughs> and they can't afford me because they were laying up people like me. Yes. So I understand that time. So, and, and actually, those times, and I, and I ended up starting my own business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be like, so. I heard from someone that said that some of the best lasting businesses were actually founded during the recession. recessions or, or yeah. depression in the 30s. Mm-hmm. That the
1: was same. basically my story. So, you know, I was working for a firm and I and they literally put me in a dark room somewhere when I was doing CAD drawings all day long. And obviously, when you think about going into architecture, you think it's luxurious, it's fancy, you're doing beautiful buildings. I'm going to one day see my building in the middle of London somewhere my parents would be so proud to go to all over, the, all over the world and tell all their friends, oh my God, my daughter's an architect. But here I was in this dark, room, doing this terrible drawings, basic council blocks, technical drawings. And I hated it. So I said to myself, and the commute was a nightmare all the way from London to Luton. Oh, you're, you're working in I Luton. I was commuting to Luton because I couldn't find anything in London. So I was forced to do that. So I decided one day I'm going to go back to London and start looking for work again. Um, I ended up doing retail for some time and I excelled in retail. It got to the point where they wanted to make me, they wanted to start training me as some sort of area manager for a high street store. And I just looked at my life and said, really, is that really what I went to university for? To be earning, you know, a certain amount, to be working at a clothes store, I'm, I'm pretty qualified here.
0: But it's funny though, you left um, what you studied and then to work in retail and then yes. you were excelling in that. I was excelling f- in that, And yes. you had another and said, so this is not... It just wasn't out. part of
1: the plan for me. You know, retail is great. As much as I like fashion, I don't want to be selling it.
0: Which store are you, are you working I was
1: working for? at Reese, So it's quite a high-end, sort of high street store. So I was doing that and then one day something in my mind just had enough. I don't know, I dunno just had come out of a meeting with one of my managers who said, oh yeah, we would like to start the training for you now. We think we can be really great because I was one of their top salespeople within the store. And I just thought to myself and I said, oh, well, how much are they earning? And he said something along the lines of like five thousand pounds a year and, I, and you get benefits of clothes. And clothes are great, but... A lot of people are working years to get to that point. To get to that point and I, and I done it within about a year and a half or about a year and a half of working for the company when they were considering me for that and I just thought no it's not really what I wanted I wanted something more I want to be able to build something of my own rather than working for somebody that's the reason why I started architecture because the plan with that was I want to build my own buildings I want to start my own firm one day so I walked out of the store I literally just turned to my colleagues and I said I'm going and they said okay see you after lunch and I said no I'm not coming back they said, what do you mean? I said, no, I can't. I'm so sorry, but I... I That's couldn't. really funny.
0: You were offered promotion and you walked out.
1: Well, no, technically, I was actually offered training for... Oh, train uh, training for, Yeah, for yeah. potential promotion. Um, they were considering me to go for that, but you've got to go through a series of training and stuff to kind of go through. But it was a scary moment for me because, you know, here I was, trying so hard to find a role in architecture, and it was saying no to me constantly. And what I was offered just wasn't what I wanted. And here I was excelling in another trade, but I knew within my myself, it just wasn't for me. So I blindly just walked out, not knowing what, what I was to going do? to do, because I still hadn't found anything in architecture. Well you
0: like have that instinct interviews. that this is not what I, I should be doing. That, I could do better. Yes. This is okay. That
1: overwhelming feeling that if I take this I'm going to be trapped. So I thought I okay, I can't do it. Well, you know when you just feel overwhelmed, okay, no, it's not for me. So I walked out and I just backed up. I went home and at the time I was in a relationship and I said to my partner, um, he goes oh, why are you home early? I said, I kind of left my job. And he looked at me like I was the craziest person on the planet. This is recession. People don't leave jobs. What on earth are you doing? And he said him, so after he got over the anger, he said to me, so what are you going to do? And I said, do you know what? I want to try and do something of my own. He said, what? I said, I don't know yet. I'll figure it out. That's, that's really scary. <laughs> it's yeah. very scary. because. But do but you
0: have that? Because sometimes entrepreneurs have this self-belief that it's not beyond a It just it's something that you cannot explain, but you know deep In inside it there's something yes. that I need to build, In my that gut, needs to be yes. done, and I'm the best person to do this. I am not be able to articulate it yet, but it, be, it forms and it becomes real, uh, and when I see it, I, I know it. I
1: was clueless. I had honest, you don't know what it is that it. You can't describe it, but you just have this overwhelming feeling that something is there. I just don't know what to call it yet, but I have. I owe it to myself to go investigate and find out what that thing is. Oh, you don't know
0: whether it's furniture or. What we? We I just had knew no, you got I to didn't. build something. I, I, so I just never had something. it, which is a good way as well. Sometimes um, to I start a business, circuit. I've always been passionate about getting X or building X, and I'm aligning myself to do that and everything. In my conversation as I want to build X. Hmm. And there are some other people that found businesses. by she said, "I want to build a business. I don't know what it is, but I'm looking for where opportunities align with my passion or my hmm. or my interests and they build something." But you were quite different. Is I want to do something. I don't know what it is, but I I know this is not that one is not, it's it. not it, and yes. I want to start something. So what did you do next?
1: So next, I just kind of got on with life. I was sitting at home, as usual, sit on the internet looking for things. Really. Watching TV? I don't really watch too much telly, but I remember that period of my life just sitting there staring at the TV, just looking and thinking like just hit me with the idea already. Give me something. Give me something. You're
0: looking for ideas? You know when you're
1: just staring into like nothing and you're just waiting for something to hit you. Those times in your life, you do pray an awful lot. And one of the things that kind of push your prayer is, oh, just give me a sign. God, just give me a sign of what it is I'm supposed to be doing. Because what I thought I should have been doing all these years, architecture hasn't necessarily happened yet. If there's something else, I'm open. Just give it to me already. But I know what I didn't want. And then one day, it was just really, really random because me and my sister we went shopping for groceries. And at the time, I thought, Honey, let me just buy some furniture for the house or whatever." And I'd been looking online, and I found a bit like a Chesterfield sofa. A Chesterfield
0: sofa, I kind of um, antique vintage sofa, yeah, leather. large leather. Big reach.
1: Oh, the and it's something British. I love. The British. Yeah, it's a British. A so it's, it's actually the only known British, originally British, piece of upholstered furniture. How old is it? I believe the Chesterfields run since the eight, early 1800s, I
0: believe. Is that a brand? The, the, no, the family actually, that started doing it? Or right, it's just, so
1: it, it stems from the Earl of Chester, which is going to look a quick background. Earl of Chesterfield, which he basically commissioned somebody to make him a nice piece of upholstery upholstered furniture for it's sort of like a meeting area where people just come in they meet and then leave so it's not to be used for daily use it was just like a a statement of wealth Mm -hmm. so somebody was commissioned to do that and they made it and it was named after the Earl of Chesterfield. So the name of the design stems from that. But Chesterfield itself is a design, not a brand. It's not... You know, it's a
0: type of design for... Yeah, it's a type
1: of, yeah. So a type of upholstered furniture. So
0: you saw that?
1: I saw that and I said to my partner, oh, let's buy one for the house. It'd be so nice. And he said, oh, it's so expensive. And we ended up buying it anyway. I managed to convince him. We bought How much it. was it? it was something like 600 pounds. Yeah, I yeah, like it. Okay. Yeah, it was a second it was a fairly used one. We found it on like Gumtree or something. Um we bought it and it came home and he saw it and he said, "Oh, it's nice." I saw it and I said, "It's disgusting. I hate After it." After
0: you bought it, you After. felt it's disgusting.
1: Something I just knew it wasn't original. It wasn't an original Chesterfield. And what we had been looking for was an original antique And it had been advertised as an original antique, but I just knew, you know, i just have that natural eye. And I knew my leather. I don't know where I got that eye from, but I just knew my leather. And I said, it's not real. It's not 100% animal hide. We have to replace it. And he was just like, oh, you've started again with your drama.
0: After you paid 600.
1: After we paid 600 pounds. pounds. And he said to me, how on earth are we going to sell it? So I said, don't worry, I'll figure it out. So back to the day with me and my sister, who's actually here today with us, uh, we were shopping. Uh, We went to Sainsbury's, I believe. And... On you know you go to the shopping centre sometimes you see like a notice board somebody had posted on a notice board that they were selling a Chesterfield suite and I looked at it and it was an antique red and I said to her oh my god she was like is that the sofa you 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 wanted I was like yeah so I thought let me get the number of the lady and luckily she was local so I called her and we ended up going to her house and now at the time I was only looking for one sofa she had a set she had like a four or five piece set. And I said, "Oh, I only need one." She said, "No, no, no. You've got to take them all. If you want them, I can't sell them pieces because they come as a set. You either take them all or you don't take them at all." So I said, "Oh God, how much is it?" She said, 300 pounds for the set." For the set, and you bought one piece for six hundred. Six hundred. I was like, "Huh? That doesn't add up." But I was like, "Okay, well." And <laughs> it's really funny because at the time when she said three hundred, I had no money. The three hundred I had in my account, I think I had three hundred and fifty pounds in my account, and that was my last paycheck from my last job that I walked out of. And she said, "Are you really going to buy?" I said, Oh going to have to buy it just for that one piece I have to buy it said, what are you going to do with the rest I said I'll figure it out so I bought it um called my partner and said oh babe um can we get a van because what for I said of course I just bought a Chesterfield set because are oh, you barking mad we already have one I said but this one's an original trust me trust me I just kept saying trust me so he did trust me he got a van we picked it up we got it to the house we had, had a very tiny flat in Stratford and we got it to the house and he said what on earth are we going to do all of this I said okay the same place we bought the first one we bought i'm going to put these on there and sell them on there we're bound to get something for it so we put it on gumtree and within a couple of days some people called hey would you come i said yeah you've got to come to my house have a look at it they came they saw they bought for how much for 950 pounds
0: so you made like 600 650 pounds profit
1: from the set that I just from bought the set you just for 300 pounds. But then remember, we also sold the original one we bought for 600 pounds.
0: Your first one, you you sold that one as we well. We sold that
1: one. We for also sold
0: the same for six, put this in there.
1: We sold nine. it for more. We sold it for more. We sold that one for 250 pounds more than what we bought it for. So we so had 250 profit from the first one. We then had, um, I think it was nine months, 650 profit from the second set. Yeah. And then we were left with the one that we originally wanted. And not only did they buy it, they didn't actually take it there and then. They trusted us to deliver it later. So I'm looking at my partner. He's looking at me. We're holding cash. And,
0: and you you sold all the sets. We sold then.
1: all the set, but we kept one. The
0: original. You kept one. one from the from that set. From the set. One point. that you didn't yes. wanted. that So not only did you sell that set for more for six hundred and fifty, you also sold less of it. So you took one out of that. That's took one out of pretty it, yes. good business. Very good business. Without doing anything.
1: We, well, a little bit of. Picture taking, a little editing, putting on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot know. of time invested, very little time invested on posting these things online. So we did that. And then we just stood there, looked at each other. And, he, and obviously, this is the man who said, I was barking mad before. And now he's looking like thinking, oh, this is quite interesting little turnout. Should we get more? It was actually his idea. So should we buy another one? I was like, yeah, I think we should. Let's try it again and see if this works. So we did it. And within three months, we had a whole house full of Chesterfield, Chesterfield
0: furniture. You're just going out. And at that point, you started having high for good just to feel you know how to knew, price it yes. how
1: to... actually we didn't because when we first started we only used to put a little bit of profit on top the first set obviously because it was a collection it, added, it made quite a lot of money so when we started in thinking like, okay let's try and get more we started to put little bits of profit on top of them then I started doing some homework and said okay well surely if I buy these cheaper my profit margin will be higher yeah
0: so we started so your first one was just lucking out
1: we thought it was just luck we thought oh, we've just been really lucky here I've got my money back he's happy I'm happy let's try and do it again and then we started doing it and starting it out and then you know the process started taking us further and further out of London at that stage we then found that okay we started renting a van we would shop online throughout the week and on the weekends we will take a van and we will travel out places like Northampton Wales, we go as far as scotland sometimes. so
0: anyone that posts just to feel online i would buy it you buy it but then where do you sell it
1: the same place how does that
0: work so i'm looking for just to feel i saw that i know things stay for a longer time on ebay or Gumtree, and i'm seeing it just a few for 300 pounds okay
1: yes.
0: and then three weeks after i'm seeing the same just a few for 600 pounds why would i buy that's it that's
1: just it though when we first started you would have seen the same thing But then my brain started telling me that I have to spruce this up, which is where the editing comes into it. So what I used to do is I would take my own photos... I'll take them in great lighting because a lot of the products we were buying, they were cheap because people were not photographing them well.
0: Because I just want to get rid of they it. They just
1: want to get rid of it. They don't understand the value in what they're selling. So when we started doing some research ourselves, we started seeing the big boy players in what we were doing. And we, we recognized what they were doing, what they were basically doing. They were restoring. They would buy a sofa that was in badly, bad condition. They would restore it and sell it for profit. So I started saying to myself, okay, well, how can I get my stuff restored? So I started looking for somebody to help me restore them. So we buy them. We'll clean them up. Sometimes I have tears in them, in the leather. Sometimes they had no leather at all. Sometimes the leather which is really, really dirty. So I had a company that would come out to the flat and would help me clean my leather pieces. And then I'll sell it for profit. So after a while, Common Sense kind of just said to me, well, couldn't you do what they're doing if you applied yourself a little bit? So I used to watch them. It started off me watching them. Then I advanced watching to videoing them. I started recording what they were doing. You record what they're doing and you're looking at what they're actually doing. So step what is, by step. What
0: did they do, actually? So they look like just a few guys cracks mm. and lots of white pieces coming out. can see mm-hmm. a lot of that and yes. pops and stuff. So Let's say you get one of those. What, what, what would they do? Would it so the leather? first thing
1: they'll do is they'll clean it because leather is like skin. It's like a lot full of oil, so you have to extract all the dirt and oil for it in order for you to start on a clean plate. So they'll first clean it well and then they'll look at the area in which the leather has been destroyed. Um a lot of the time they use microscopes to kind of study the leather properly. They'll then sort of use sort of chemicals and products to try and patch up areas where the colour had perhaps been leaving the leather. If something is a cut, they'll use a sub material at the bottom of it to hold it back together and then treat the surface to blend it in with the rest of the piece. So all these things I was Taking it in, I was taking it in, I was taking it in. Then I started to rec- sort of recording the products that they were using, and Leather Trade is a very secret. Um, industry It's not something you can just go online and tell you how to do these things. Is it? Because yes. it's been
0: um, steeped in tradition and yes, apprenticeship, precisely. apprenticeship and people learning.
1: Back to what you were saying about me being a woman doing a man's job. A lot of the men who did this stuff were old white men in a shed somewhere or in a workshop somewhere. They weren't in, a, in public eye. It's not like a high street store. You see them working on furniture. So it was, it was trade secrets essentially what I was capturing on my camera. So I started looking into it. I thought this is really, really good stuff. Do they stuff. know you are recording them? do you know what they didn't I must admit they did not and that was a little th- <laughs> a bit cheeky of me but that's just what I had to do at the time in order for me to try and teach myself
0: because you cannot get a permission to come into their little club so no, you have you to don't. just in you yourself to. these
1: are these are traditional things that they've passed on to their children and workers and over a long period of time it's not I can't go to the library and find how to restore leather If I'm lucky, I might find something, but it doesn't tell me the full story. So that was the quickest way for me to learn. And what I didn't learn from them, I picked up on YouTube to bridge the gaps. And obviously, then I started advancing to contacting companies and saying, hi, I'm a fellow business owner. Could you possibly tell me, I'm trying to achieve this with my leather. Can you possibly tell me what products I could choose? And so through doing that, and it's funny because businesses who are doing these things, they will help you. Yeah, of course. It's always wise to ask the questions you don't know. They will help you. Even the guys I was recording, although they didn't know I was recording them. Whenever I asked them questions, they were more than happy to say, oh, yeah, you've got to take your time with this one every stage. Wait six hours before you put the next coat and blah, blah, blah. So in essence, they were helping me. So we got through that part. And then eventually I said, okay, I need to basically make myself an expert now. That's when I started going to the schools where I paid... A little bit of money, and I got all the trades. Is
0: that is that a school for people to learn how to restore Chesterfield? Well, just it's a
1: actually out of one of the companies that I contacted, asking for help. And every other week, I'll call them. Oh, hey, Demi, how are you? They started knowing me now. Oh, they'd never see me face to face. Every time I called and asked questions. Oh, hi, how's it going? I was like, okay, yeah, I'm really trying to do this now. That like, why don't you go to um go to the training where we trained? I was like, oh, really? You know, like yeah, just contact this lady. Can't give her her name is June or whatever, and she'll tell you all the details. So I eventually went to the leather training school and then discovered what I was doing wrong, what I was doing right, and how to refine my skills a little bit. So that's how the business then started stabilizing. And in the
0: meantime, you're still buying from online and selling and restoring and selling. So you're making a bit of profit there. A lot of profit. A lot of profit. What's the margin we're talking about here?
1: I could, you know, with this type of furniture, it's because not many people understand the value and what they have a lot of the time with antiques. You know, sometimes, like you said, it's when to get rid of it. Or something has a small tail. Oh, that's it. It's finished. Nothing can be done. So they'll put it online for £25. A whole sofa for £25. Chesterfield. A Chesterfield, yes. And I look at that and thinking, well, it's all the way in Scotland. So I've got to obviously invest a little bit of time and energy to go and get it. But once I've done that, I get it into my studio. I follow my steps. I refine it. If I need to, I can go as fast as changing the entire colour. Oh, you can? Yes, I can go as far as changing the entire colour. So, and I'll put it back online Advertise it, people will come. That twenty-five pounds sofa could fetch me two thousand pounds. What? Yes.
0: That's a big margin.
1: Yes, but obviously you, you spend a little. You spend some some of time and uh, some yeah. time and money you, doing it. Well, urban. of course
0: you be you to be going on with about sixty percent margin. Very good margins, yeah. So you're doing a bit of that. You don't have any challenge with demand for Chesterfield sofa. While um, you while you started moving away from not just online or or, YouTube, or eBay and, and stuff, you're now having your own website.
1: We created a website probably about I actually built it myself probably about six to eight months in. We thought, okay, let's there has to be somewhere they can go because the problem with um, advertising to. People on other platforms like Gumtree and eBay is that sometimes they might suspect it might be a scam, and then you're competing with a lot of people on there as well. Your stuff doesn't tend to stand out properly. You can't. But then
0: it's a, it's a big platform,
1: and it's and a huge platform. To, and we get... were we were selling quite a lot on that platform, but then we decided, okay, we want to now be a proper business, get registered, do all the necessary things. And if we wanted to demand more money, we had to have our own platforms. That's why we decided to do our own website.
0: So it's interesting that you got yourself into an industry that you wouldn't have actually if you had a plan. Yes, that's not something that you're going to write in your plan. That I want to be a Chesterfield restore. Yes, uh, who restorer.
1: says that. It's didn't.
0: just except you know, if your dad is doing that, and you don't imagine. Yes. It's not a business that you can actually study and not imagine. Mm-hmm. You just stumbled into it, kind yes. of. So when you not learned, you went to the school and you started. Now you launch your own business. So tell me how, because there's a bit of a challenge. that's different from somebody who's just doing something freelance in their house and making a couple of hundred. Mm-hmm. dollars or pounds to somebody who's saying okay this is me this is what I do this is my business I'm investing time and money and making it big tell me about the changes that happened when you now registered it and you're now having your own website and you're having a big studio
1: now I think for me at that point it was a bit of a reality check we got to the point where we're now going to be held accountable for our processes paying taxes we're just doing a website so there are now demands from us because we're now a proper company whereas before i'm just a girl in my flat i I bought something i was lucky enough to have somebody come over and buy it and give me some money for it and i've I've kept all my money now i own the tax man a a part of that process now i'm having to now record everything and do things the proper way and then obviously that eats into your profits especially when business is also down you still certain responsibilities you have to pay and then it got to the point where we said okay we can't keep doing this from home that and obviously invest money in the space and furniture demands a lot of space so how to hire people at that point as well and um, we weren't hiring people just yet so when you say we, we, we it was me we mean, and my partner oh he we were actually was working on it we as well. was where he was basically helping out on the weekends because okay, he so had, it was he still a full-time a, job yeah, yes.
0: the so he, he didn't quit his job as he so, didn't yeah. quit no okay. he, he
1: carried on doing that so the chesterfield stuff at the beginning, we thought we were just lucky. This is just luck. Come on, how long can we sustain this for? But then the more I kind of get, went further and further into it, I started realizing that, okay, certain things will change, but ultimately I still have a good business model here. So it's really my responsibility to try and scale it as much as I possibly could. Um,
0: what were your ideas of scaling it? What did you? What steps did you take to scale that? I
1: started creating a brand. I started, okay, I created my logo. Then I started, okay, what do I want to call myself? What do I want to stand for? Who are my clientele? What type of things do they like to see? What kind of places do they hang out? I started studying my market a lot more. And by studying my market, I then started realizing that, okay, I have a real opportunity here. It's now quite a critical point for me to sort of, okay, how do I then turn things around from just a girl doing her hobby on the side to really be respected as a brand? And the moment I started doing that, I started then noticing the type of clientele I was getting. I was getting the VIPs. I was getting places like Clarence House. I was. You know, we Clarence House were uh, yes. ordering your furniture. They ordered something from us, yes, and we.
0: And they discovered you through your website or through the it, events. It's just yourself. a
1: lot. I think marketing was key. So we we will have our own website. We'll go out um, with flyers and things like that in our local area and post it to houses.
0: In areas that you think people want to
1: buy this. kind In of areas furniture? that we thought, you know, places like Dorset, you know, kind of that like traditional part of East London, we were targeting our. Clientele. You're targeting
0: Dawson. I thought most people live in oh, no, are living Dawson. except the new flats in Dawson.
1: Dawson, has a lot of hidden places, places like in, in East London, who are very wealthy. Yes, I
0: would um, have thought that you would be targeting Islington and
1: Islington is very close to Dawson. Yeah, yeah, Islington yeah. Or,
0: as well. We or, had, or maybe the usual suspect. Like, I
1: remember as well that the type of when we the more studying we did of our client, we realised that. A lot of the people who were buying from us, they had a certain demographic as well. So when we deliver to them, we were privileged to see, oh, wait a minute, I've never seen this road before. This is quite an affluent road in the middle of somewhere that you never suspect. So our eyes were being opened up to these things. The more we went in it, the more we were discovering that we didn't know a lot.
0: And then people would talk to their friends Then we had
1: well. referrals and things like that. The next minute we had calls from Jimmy Shu, fashion designers who wanted, because what we are doing as well is we've discovered that people wanted furniture for short term. For photo-hops? Yeah. For photo opportunities they wanted it for fashion shows they wanted it for private parties a lot of offices
0: so you started discovering different use cases for your product
1: for our product the client we had a clientele our clients used our products for different things
0: how are you then engaging with your clients so you, some of them discover you online so you don't have online, a, like a email yes. list and you're writing to them every time about your new product we're,
1: line we were building data we were collecting information about who our clients were and we were discovering because a lot of the time we were privileged to enter their homes they become friends a lot of our clients will enter their homes and you kind of build rapport with people and they start telling you things oh my god my friends will love your stuff and um, please call them this is their contact details and a lot of referrals were coming through so we, it's just that what we did with that information is what really, really made that turn for us.
0: Who were your major competitions?
1: We started discovering our major competitions, which were a lot of companies who are outside of London, who are making Chesterfields, were a lot of our companies. What?
0: Some of them were old companies, right? Established um, 1854. Well, it's funny
1: because, <laughs> without mentioning names, there's a Chesterfield company in England. It's been there since 1718. And they have somehow copyrighted the word Chesterfield. They copyrighted into, Chesterfield. Into the, yes, they've kind of claimed it as one of the originals. So we were looking to people like that, not necessarily as competition, but we're looking to them for influence. We're looking to them for some sort of ideas at a target, something to try and aim towards. Yeah. Obviously, they've been doing this stuff for a very, very so they long time. So
0: they'll have a lot of premiums. So you can then go a little bit lower than them. Is well, that how you're are them? Or you're it's actually them funny
1: because what they did for us... Your speed. What, what they did for us was help us realize that we were undercharging for our service. We were doing more research and we discovered these people were selling things for thousands. And it's really funny, what we even discovered was that a lot of the places we were buying our furniture from, they were also buying their furniture.
0: They were buying their furniture from people as well and restoring it. Is there anyone making Chesterfield from scratch?
1: Oh yeah, they are. 1718 makes their Chesterfield from scratch. There's other companies who also because what they started doing is, a lot of people, what they do, they will sell antiques but they also make new so they were doing the two, old and new, a nice blend, which is a direction we started then going into, that we can blend old and new. So you started making your furniture at some point them. as well no, from within scratch? within two years we started making So how many people own? did you employ at that point? At that point we had a two carpenters and upholsters are working with us and everything else was outsourced.
0: What do you mean everything else was outsourced? So,
1: for instance, if we need somebody that is going to make our legs, we didn't employ him to make our legs, we simply outsource it to a company to do that for us. If we want somebody to provide our cushions and our fillings, we'll outsource that and then they just deliver it. We put everything together. So what
0: do you do then? Obviously, you you now know how to restore. Uh, Do you then get into the workshop and start making things yourself, restoring or... Yes. You'll learn how to do I carpentry. Stuff. I
1: learned I I don't do carpentry, no. I don't actually physically get the wood and cut it together. My role set in essence is I do the designs of what we want or the changes to alterations to what we've possibly got in stock. Um, I then basically then do the leather restoring, which is the colouring. So I'm the colour technician, I'm the restorer, the person who fixes all the cuts and bruises to the leather, and then the person who does all the fill-ins and stuff here and there where we need to. Everything else is built by the carpenters, and then the upholsterers do the stitching on all the other major parts of the furniture.
0: And you also do the selling as well.
1: And I do the selling and marketing, so yes. you're the
0: face of the company. I am, yes. So this company was now growing two years, and you were part of the Princess Trust,
1: yeah, so when we decided to, we needed more space, we wanted to move to a bigger, you know, sort of space and workshop. That's when we then went to the Prince's Trust and said, hi, we are Majors Chesterfield. So Prince's
0: Trust is, just for some of our listeners, I'm not familiar with it, it was, um, it was a charity started by Prince Charles. Yes. And the idea is to encourage young people to go into entrepreneurship by giving them mentorship and sometimes grants and funding, and yes. funding to, to do so. So you went to Princess Trust and said, yes. hey, we are young people and we do Chesterfield Restoration, which is quite antique and young.
1: Yes, I think but at that point we got quite a lot of media attention.
0: How did you get, um, get
1: One that? day, Number 10 Downing Street called us and said, we would like to invite you down. We've seen some of your work online. We think it's really superb what you're doing.
0: How did you get to the place where Number 10 Downing Street noticed what you were doing?
1: When you have clients who share your stuff on social media, and they're more than happy to tell other people what they discovered. Plus, you're a woman of
0: color, a young lady doing that. I'm, I'm
1: a complete opposite of what oh. I should be in that industry. So I think that in itself gained us quite a bit of attention. And once people are like, oh, there's a young black woman who's making, you know, restoring furniture, and she's doing it for certain people, we would like to know more. What's, how is she actually doing this? And, you know, a lot of young people at the time, they tend to go into more hippie, younger technology things like that and here I am doing something very very old fashioned so people just naturally were curious so when we were invited to number 10 down the street that was our opportunity to basically tell our story so it's a great platform so once people heard our story it was like oh my god we want to know more and then we were then asked by Clarence House to host an event for Prince Charles in our office so we put that together and we invited him down and he came and. And he was just coming
0: to see. He was yeah. coming to
1: see Majors Chesterfield, yes. Now, how awesome
0: was that to have a prince, the heir to the throne of England, coming to your studio
1: it was epic <laughs> that's it where was the studio at this point we're basically in Bermondsey okay
0: that's not like East London East, no it's
1: East or more South yeah Um Southeast
0: and then you drove with the, so you have some security guy come in
1: We and, the whole uh, place was shut down was Shut down. so they came like days prior to do security checks ask and ask you like lots that. of questions about you yes they wanted to know who I was wanted to know who my family members were what they did so you, MIFI stuff it was really it was pretty serious and I, we weren't even allowed to tell anybody he was come in everybody just saw this entourage of security and stuff turn you cannot up. tell your parents well coming? that wasn't meant to but you told come your on parents. I had to tell my mum to put on that special dress didn't I
0: and she came
1: she, as, she as had, if she was
0: working in your store as well
1: my goodness she came ready <laughs>
0: I can imagine she was
1: ready and it's really fun my mum's called Elizabeth and my dad's called Charles interesting very so when I saw obviously they were prepared and then that morning the whole building was then like what's going on he was coming he's coming but I think at that stage they knew something quite something big
0: bi- some, some, somebody yeah, big is coming something
1: big was coming and then he turned up and then we, I kind of you know welcomed him and then I took him upstairs to the office and then we sat down and other young entrepreneurs were also invited to sort of showcase some of the stuff that they do as well just to kind of get that conversation. But You were the one hosting it? I was hosting it, yes. So we sat down, I sat with him and, you know, the press and everybody was there. We asked him a series of questions. Um, And he made some suggestions for Miguel Chesterfield.
0: Because Um, he's a Chesterfield lover instead. He
1: loves Chesterfield. When he heard our story, he wanted to meet me in person because I think, because he loves, he has such a great love for leather and, you know, sort of British-made products, he was quite impressed that a young person was doing something like that. So his best advice for me was never stop making homegrown stuff. Like stay true to you know how your processes are and never change that Made in Britain stuff at the time obviously and it still is uh, very much part of the conversation we're having in the country about how to grow our economy and that's basically what we're trying to do in Nigeria too what was the impact of that visit to your business I, I couldn't tell you it was like a it was like a flip overnight was it yes because by that stage everybody in London knew who pretty much Major Chesterfield was anybody remotely interested in Chesterfields, and even if you didn't know what Chesterfield was I was that girl who did Chesterfield, Chesterfield. I was that girl who did the button sofa and that definitely helped our business and i think then approaching the market and sending newsletters out to our clients who hadn't bought and then they see that it's been endorsed by it's the been prince endorsed by the prince and then following from that you know number ten down street, but at that stage it was where it is quite also important. number ten down street ordered some of your stuff as well. No, it was funny enough, they actually wanted us to restore some furniture. They had a chair for Winston Churchill that they wanted us to restore. That um, would have been interesting. It would have been interesting, but the family then changed their mind. They didn't want to restore it anymore. The because, family? Yes, they decided to keep it the
0: family of Winston Churchill had a chair in number ten down the street that Winston Churchill used to yes, sit on. It was his main and chair. number ten down the street was thinking of restoring them and the family said no we want it to Keep, it the, Keep way it the
1: way it is. Yes. It is.
0: Okay. So you got a lot of press attention, a lot of media uh, mentioned. And then uh, just tell me how... Because a lot of people listening to these are entrepreneurs who want to do something similar or want to take advantage of media attention. How did you utilize that or or not
1: to be honest with you i probably hold media solely responsible for the way my business took and how we've managed to grow so quickly and how we've managed to do so well so quickly because a lot of people are doing what we are doing you just don't see them and it's critical when you're trying to scale a business you you need visibility you know in a world where information is so quick and rapid now if you're not in the race you quickly get left behind because people see that as authentication nowadays Days, don't
0: they? But some people can have that kind of attention and then not do anything with not it. Not do with it, yeah. And so, what, did, what steps did you take?
1: Consistency is is big for me. I always make sure that we're consistent. As much as we're marketing the product, we're also marketing the brand. Always make sure we're in constant communication with our clients, both past and present, and then obviously future as much as we can. And just giving that knowledge and just sharing our knowledge because content is so, so important. And everything we're doing at every stage, we're trying as much as possible to carry people along and just to try and remain visible in everything that we're doing. So, you know, consistency, you can be visible one day and then tomorrow you're, nobody to be seen again because you've not kept that momentum going. So your business
0: is not a typical business that we, uh, that we talk to because we talk to people who are using technology to scale and the key word is scale. Your business doesn't look like something that you really want to scale and be producing thousands and millions.
1: Um, it didn't start off like that because okay. remember we started up as a niche. Mm-hmm. We grew so quickly and we became so well known because we were a niche. A small group of people thought we were interesting and they want to keep us small so that they, only they can enjoy us. And moving into the Nigerian market, that model is different. So why?
0: Okay. So before we got to the Nigerian market, so you knew that the business we're doing in England has to be niche. What now made it to come to Africa Mm -hmm. in the first and then what's happening to the business in in England at the moment?
1: So in England, we're pretty much kind of stabilized a little bit. We've we've gone solely online. We don't have a shop front per se anymore because obviously I'm not there to sort of service that. But clients who are interested in our products can go on our website and they can purchase and then... Obviously, the guys over there will take care of logistics. And you're still buying it. from? we still buy, buying yes. from
0: Gumtree and Restore.
1: Um, we've kind of advanced a little bit away from Gumtree. We Where have are now going to we that? have four time suppliers now. We have people who actually find things for us. Okay. And bring it to us for us.
0: And then you buy from them. You okay. buy from them. So yes. it's now online. People go online to your website mm-hmm. and they can order just feel ready-made. Yes. Or they can commission one to be done for them. That's correct. Yes. And then they get it delivered to their house. That's so, correct. That pretty look like a business that can scale as long as your supply is supply ma- matching there, yes. yeah uh, the demand. So you have a distribution channel and it's a bit like sofa.com or niche.
1: A niche version of it,
0: yeah. Sofa.com. Okay. Yes. So and then you have to build an e-commerce platform. People can pay online. You can pay online. And you have a customer service. Um it's still because your ticket size is Huge, so it's still you're not selling volume, you're actually selling yes. quality, mm-hmm. and that's a pretty business model. How much were you making at that point? Was like Can you give it a, r- r- a you rough go?
1: estimate, probably sort of turn around and over, probably in excess of hundred
0: and a year per year. Okay, so that's pretty decent and good. Why did you decide to come to Nigeria?
1: All right, so one of the reasons why I, I decided to come over is because this conversation started about opportunities in Africa and how Africa was changing. Now, although I'd visited Nigeria before, I didn't see the Nigeria that everybody had been talking about.
0: Well, your parents were from Nigeria originally. They You are, were yes. born in the UK.
1: No, I was born in Nigeria. When and I went over to the UK when I was very, very young, before I even have any memory of Nigeria. So when I then visited Nigeria, it was like oh, very much new to me. And I was just like, oh, this is very, very strange. But I had no real, real preconceptions and things like that. So when this conversation started in the UK about people doing great things in Nigeria and things changing and young people coming back and you know that period where it's Christmas and all your friends are missing where are they oh they're in Lagos Is is that
0: what happened to you?
1: Yes, all your friends... You just had somebody
0: in Lagos working with one company and doing stuff. Like,
1: what are they doing in Lagos? Everybody's enjoying Lagos. I thought, I'm going to go to Lagos and check out what's really happening. So I came over and that was the first time I'd actually seen the Nigeria that everybody had been talking about. So this is actually quite fun. The weather is great. The people are friendly. Oh, is that that your impression? That was my second impression because I was more exposed at that point. I was much older. But when I first came over, I was 14 years old and it was, you know, you're 14, you're kind of pretty much you know, guided by your parents aren't you? you don't really get to go out anywhere so when I came over in I think it was 2000 and was it 2012 or thereabouts and I thought I would to have a look and I had a lot of fun so I thought well why not so my parents had been saying you know you should take your business to Africa take your business home go and show everybody what I do in there they'll love it they'll buy it and obviously you don't take them seriously do you Um, So when I did come over again in 2015 and I kind of said to myself, well, let's do a little bit of feasibility studies um, and find out what's really going on in Nigeria in terms of the furniture market. And I discovered that such a huge gap compared to what we have back in London so many companies doing so many brilliant things and getting furniture is so easy like why is it but over here it just seemed to be so so much of a chore you go to a store the, you know the options are not really there you don't really find what you're looking for you don't have to turn to the guy on the road to especially i quality, quality, stuff, quality yes. stuff because
0: you can easily go to the street and buy furniture for less than 500. Pounds mm. or dollars and the guy will make it for you and actually actually make it for you. Yes. But when you're looking at a button you're it's not gonna be good, it's poorly designed. The
1: longevity of it. It's just yeah, lonely. and it's
0: just something is not right with it. But it's talking about the high end one people normally actually do import.
1: I heard that and I thought that was I thought that was crazy. Why on earth are you importing furniture? Because we don't know how to get quality. Based on what we were doing in the UK, I thought, well, I've got the inside knowledge. It's really not that difficult to make good quality furniture. We're doing it and we're doing it relatively easy. So I think it's just having that eye and then that design sense as well. It's not really that So what did you do? and The
0: first step that you took to actually address that.
1: Okay. So the first thing I did when I came to Nigeria and I decided I'm going to try this out is I went looking for a workshop where they made furniture and I wanted to ask questions. I wanted to know where they buy the materials, I wanted to know their process, I wanted to know who was making the furniture in essence and how they were doing it. I even went as far as visiting a factory one of the major furniture makers in Nigeria the indigenous ones outside of Lagos and I and I sat with them and I asked them a series of questions and they were a little bit standoffish of sharing some information with me but I I can be quite persuasive um so I got some information out of them and I discovered a lot of the things that they said were actually indigenous were actually just been coupled in Nigeria. So they were made abroad, in essence, the, the, the major components, and then brought to Nigeria and then assembled. assembled. Okay. That's basically what they were doing. And they were selling their hand furniture. They were selling them. And even then I thought, well, although they are strong pieces of furniture, and I don't want to mention the names of the companies I'm talking about, although they were pretty solid and they will last a certain amount of time, they were lacking in designs. They were lacking in that sort of The flexibility of design that I'm pretty much used to where I'm from, where, you know, you know what's in vogue. Everything looked the same with theirs. Very boxy, very old-fashioned. wasn't enticing at all. And then I looked at the price points and I thought, wow. If you're going to pay that much, then what's the point if that's all you're going to get? So I thought, well, let me try and make something first, not all talk. Let me try and make something. So I started going to these local workshops and asking them, OK, where do I buy my from? Where do I get my phone? Where do I get my wood? Where do I get my, my fiber? Where do I get my legs and all of that and all of the, you know, my hinges? And... I went to those places, I went to the markets, I bought things, I found myself a space, I got guys who were willing to try and help and I said, okay, I want us to make this and they looked at me and I'm like, oh, this one is easy, they underestimated the work. Now I said, I want you to make this but make it the way I tell you to make it. So for several weeks, we stayed in this workshop and... We cut wood, we cut fabric, we cut foam. And it was quite frustrating because in essence, I thought I was telling them how to do their jobs. These are experienced carpenters and upholsterers. Um, Some left because they didn't want to listen to me. This black little girl coming from the UK speaking for Nick. Yeah,
0: telling telling us us what to do. Telling us
1: what to do and condemning our work. Um, So some left and one or two stayed and we continued by the end of the process I wasn't necessarily happy with what we'd done so we just carried on doing it until we got it right and then I think somebody heard that I, I was in town and they are like oh I would like to make some furniture could you make something for me and I was just like oh I haven't got my workforce yet, but you know what? The person knew about you from England. They knew me about me from England, yes. And I was like, I haven't got my workforce yet. It's literally just me trying to navigate around. But you know what? You know, One of my mentors said that you never say no to a job. You mm. take it and you figure out how to do it later. So that's in essence what I did. I took the job um, and they wanted me to basically make furniture for their entire flat. And I did that. <laughs> And they loved it.
0: And it was good money?
1: It was it was decent money. It wasn't fantastic, but in essence, it was my first real project here, and I had something to prove. And it was obviously a challenge for me, but I got it done, and they were happy. And funny enough, I wasn't happy with it, because I felt we could have done much better. But it was the first, and you are going to have those testing ones, aren't you? Because you're working with a new crew, and a working, new process. I'm yes, working with new materials. You know, The materials aren't the same as what they are. The foam isn't the same. The fabric it's the same
0: and in that time your, your business in the UK was still going on We're who was going. running it and of um,
1: what well, I can run it. I can run it online because you've I've kind of put things in a in a way that it's easy for me to access a lot of in obviously as long as I have, as long as I have internet I can talk to my clients I can contact the workshops and say okay we've got this order so this, that's quite good because you're
0: doing something similar to four hour work week that Tim Ferriss yeah. wrote about that you can actually run a good business just spending three hours working on it after you got a process you got yes, you give people best. responsibility correct, yes. and you allow them to do things to well do you the empower best. them to make decisions
1: on yeah. their own so that's and that's a big lesson to learn for anybody in business because it's very difficult to let go um so it was testing time for me to leave the UK and be telling people from a distance okay do this do this is when things go wrong what do you then do well you have to let them give them the opportunity to to fix it and correct those things. So that's basically what we did. So you started
0: in Nigeria with that, somebody commissioned you to do the flat, and then what happened afterwards?
1: Well, they got me another client. You got
0: another client. I said i beauty more client base since two thousand and fifteen. Mm-hmm. So how many client base have we got now in Nigeria?
1: Oh wow. Now we do sort of B2C, but a lot of our business now is actually B2B.
0: You talk, you're working for businesses. We
1: we'll work for a, like we do work for interior designers, um,
0: for hotels that want
1: we've not done hotels directly, but what we do we work with the interior designers who are who are commissioned to do those jobs. So it's pretty much you know, architects, interior designers, people like that. How do you get jobs? How do we get jobs in, in Nigeria? Nigeria? Because
0: it's, I know asked that question because business development in Nigeria is different from the UK, mm-hmm.
1: right? Yes.
0: So what are the differences to you?
1: I think the time we're at at the moment, everybody's having this conversation about technology and social media. And in essence, that's what we've used. We have used social media in Nigeria to try and gain a little bit of attention. And we've been lucky because we have a track record that people can look back to and say, oh, well, they're not just new. They may be new in Nigeria, but they've got history somewhere. And we're very good at using social media. We're very interactive. We, we, we basically carry you along our entire process. So if you go on our Instagram, for instance, you can pretty much see how we select materials, how our guys are actually working on them live to the finished product.
0: So you're really leveraging on that.
1: We are. We're showing you because I think one of the problems of Nigerian standards and finishing in general is transparency. People don't think these things are transparent. You don't know how they're making your furniture. So when it falls apart, you're left in the dark. Whereas I'm showing you how I'm making my furniture. I'm, I'm showing you what makes my furniture different from what you probably buy on the roadside and, you know, why my designs are much nicer and I'm building things properly. I'm using the right materials. I'm not compromising on, you know, my wood. I'm treating my wood I'm doing this, and doing that.
0: What are the biggest learning sticking points or learning curve that you have to go through someone who's running a business, who would run businesses in the UK and now run a business in the UK?
1: I think it's the transition. Sometimes we can get so stuck in our, um, our comfort zones and we don't want to adapt. And that is a challenge because I have that challenge here when I'm like, oh God, you know, I don't have to experience this in London. You know, I have a challenge. I know who to go to in London. Here it's, oh, I don't know where to turn. I'm literally at the mercy of people wanting to help or people sharing the information that I could otherwise find online if I was in the UK. But it also strengthens you and you, and you, you build resilience that you never knew you even had. Nobody, I never would have thought to myself, you know, Five years ago, I'd be in Lagos, run, not only running a business, but doing it well. You know, I think resilience is definitely the biggest thing I've learned um, moving here. But challenges, like, you know, everyday challenges, light, obviously, is an issue for anybody trying to run a business here. But the only way it's going to get better is if we get involved. How
0: many people work in your studio in Nigeria now?
1: Uh, at the moment, as of yesterday, we have 14 employees.
0: We have more employees in, the UK, in Nigeria than in UK. I do, yes. Is it because labor is cheaper?
1: Well, nobody wants to say it, but it's the truth. Labour is much cheaper and there isn't so much red tape as there is in the UK so I pay my workers they go about their the business we do what we need to do um, in the UK this it's very very difficult to try to, by the time you get to the point where you're employing 14 individuals you know your, your overheads are telling you
0: yeah I know that mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got that yeah I've, I've got that before in my previous startup where you look at how much money you've got in the bank you look at how much you have to pay at the end of the month it's just, <laughs> <laughs> and so let's quickly talk about your business now and where do you see it Go into what are the key things that you see, how this can shape a lot of things in Africa in terms of, I'm looking at female entrepreneurship, making things in Nigeria for Nigerians, and innovation and creativity. And I'm putting a lot of things into that, but how do you see what you're doing, contributing or speaking to all those things?
1: You know, one of the ambitions I had, well, I still have it, funny enough, it hasn't changed. I don't know why I said that. But one of my ambitions is to open a school, to train people and to do what it is that I do. A lot of the guys that I have on my team, they're very young. I believe in the young people because I recognize myself and I know where I came from. Not having a clue what you're doing and then finding something and then having you know that strength to keep pushing ahead and believing in yourself. So I'd like to kind of to do that for young people. And I think for me, where I kind of see myself and my business. It's just growing in a way that I'm providing jobs. That's very, very important for me because in Nigeria, we know that's obviously a big issue. I came from a place where there was very little jobs and I know what, you know, how it feels. So in Nigeria, where it's God knows how many times worse um, for the young people. I'd like to grow that. We want to sort of establish ourselves as manufacturers. We're not, we're not interior designers. We're not trying to make pretty things. We're, we're trying to really contribute to the change that's happening here. And I do hope that when that change starts surfacing and people are really seeing the changes properly in their daily lives and the benefits of those changes, I would like to be part of that dialogue as you know one of the people who contributed to that. So that's really...
0: So job creation.
1: Job creation and just building... I've always wanted to build something. Remember I said I never knew what it was, but now I do, and I'm doing it. And I want to see that build, and I want to see how it impacts the lives of other people. How is
0: technology helping your business, or how will it help it better?
1: How would it help it better? I think, obviously, as a manufacturer, it's just just relationships, isn't it? Connecting with people. And, like I said, visibility for me is very, very important in what it is that I do. Nigerians like to buy what they see. They like pretty things. Technology allows me to give you open access to what I'm doing. And, to be honest with you, that's basically what my business has been... So do
0: you sell online in Nigeria?
1: We do sell online. We're on Conga. You can find us on conga.com.ng. I believe we also sell on Instagram, which is people quite work, an odd. Yes,
0: you don't have a website. Where we
1: do can. have a website, majorschesterfield.com. You can go Major. on there, but that's not e-commerce because Nigerians do not buy that it, kind of money. That kind with, of money um, a feel. through a cash, I mean, a card system. They want to feel it and see it. We have a workshop in Surulere. We have a showroom also in Surulere. We're we'll working towards getting a showroom on the island at some point as well. But yeah, that's basically what we're doing at the moment.
0: I'm going to end this conversation by asking a series of round questions. And uh, it's just one statement question that you can answer that as, um, with another one statement or as quickly as you can. Are uh, you ready for that?
1: Yes, go ahead. Good.
0: So, what is your biggest business pain point at the moment?
1: My biggest
0: business pinpoint.
1: point. Pinpoint? Yes. I'm not entirely sure at this stage. I think for us, it's because mm, we're, we're very much. In that experimental stage, we're experimenting with a lot. So we don't quite know just yet exactly where we are in terms of our... So what
0: are the challenges that you face now? The
1: challenges we're facing is light. It's infrastructure. Infrastructure is a big one for us. Those are the things, I feel like that's everybody's challenge at the moment. Mm. So I don't really What
0: is your number one growth metric? What is the number that you look at on a weekly, or on a monthly basis that indicates that your business is growing?
1: The number of clients that number we cut cli- yeah, number of clients we interact with and then obviously we work out averages and stuff from that. But for us I always say to my team, it's it's a numbers game, isn't it? The more clients we come across, the more sales we're about to make. Yes. If I'm not seeing any clients, then I know I have a problem.
0: Which book are you reading at the moment?
1: So at the moment, reading *The Image of Africa and the Trouble with Nigeria* by Chinwe Echebe.
0: By Chinwe Echebe, it's one of his last books. Um, So, what is the what is thesis of the book?
1: I think it's talking from my experience of a student. I've just started it. student in a you know, sort of university and then how he's sort of kind of perceived by sort of his peers and things like that through the socio-economical perspective or something along those lines. But okay.
0: Which business is getting you excited apart from your own business?
1: In Nigeria, I'll probably say agriculture. Part of Nigeria, which has nothing to do with what I do, but there's this big shift back to what we, what our ancestors used to do. It's exciting because I'm seeing more and more young people turn into that, and it's such a weird narrative because, like me, you expect to see an old man doing furniture, but and with there, you expect to see an old man or woman similar to you working and just yeah, and, young and doing something different. Yes, young people are now farming. That is just so fascinating for me. I'm, I'm really excited about what that means for Nigeria in years to come
0: and it could be very interesting and more impactful as well mm. it's been a pleasure talking to you in this podcast I really enjoyed listening to your story and what you've done and I'm also looking forward to maybe visiting your, your showroom
1: she buy some furniture
0: yeah but I don't have a place in Nigeria so <laughs> we'll get you a place don't (laughs) worry so yeah it's been great talking to you I really enjoyed it and I hope you enjoyed it too as well
1: I did thank you so much for having me
0: thanks for coming Demi this series is in partnership with the British Council in Nigeria the British Council is the UK's international organisation for cultural relations and educational opportunities all opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion or policies of the British Council for more information about about the British Council. Go to council.org.ng You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com.
1: Our revolution will be televised.
0: s-t-a-r-t-a dot com and sign up for our newsletter it will be a huge favour to me and it's really simple and easy if you subscribe now it will help us a lot thanks